The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church for study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC4. And this is Secret Church for episode six. So, look at creation, design, morality. Where did God come from? This is the question that every four-year-old child asks their mom or dad. So what do you say? I mean, really, I'd like to know. I'm about two years away from this. What, 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 what do you say? Here's what I would encourage you to say. Say God was never created and never came into being. That'll solve it. That'll be easy. They'll walk away from that. Just be like, yeah, of course, of course. They may look back at you and they say, what do you mean by that? And say, I don't know. I just heard it one, late one night and I wrote it down. Uh, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The reality is God has no origin. He has no origin. He is the uncaused one. This is certainly a picture of faith. We talked about the universe begins to exist, therefore it has to have a cause. We're trusting there's one who is uncaused. We're trusting it takes a lot more faith to believe that the universe is uncaused than it does to believe that God is uncaused. God was never created and never came into being. And God is entirely independent. Acts 17.25 says he's not served by human hands. He doesn't derive his life from any external source. All of us derive our lives from external sources. God doesn't. God, that means God doesn't, do, that God doesn't need us or anyone that matter for anything. He doesn't need anyone for anything, including us. And that leads to the self-sufficiency of God. God has no needs. This is one of my favorite verses in Psalms. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. So he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Isn't that great? God says to his people, just in case you needed to know, if I were hungry, you would not be the person I would come to. <laughs> he has no needs. God does not need our companionship. Ladies and gentlemen, God did not create man because he was lonely. Sometimes we got that thought that God created us because he was lonely. God had perfect relationship and fellowship within himself and the Trinity. We'll talk about that later. He doesn't need our companionship. He doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need our songs. He doesn't need our Bible study. He doesn't need our church attendance. He doesn't need your worship. At this moment, he is surrounded by innumerable creatures who are singing his praises and doing his bidding at every single moment. He doesn't need our worship. Tozer said, we're all human beings suddenly to become blind. Still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So were every man on earth to become an atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. He doesn't need our companionship. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our discipleship. We talk about making disciples all the time here at Brook Hills. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do that. Bill Bright, he is probably one of a few men, a handful of men, who have had more effect on the cause of Christ in the world in the 20th century than anyone else. And he passed away. He said this soon before he did pass away. He said, who is Bill Bright? I'm a little nobody among six billion nobodies. God has given me several things I think he's wanted me to do. And yet there doesn't seem to be any assurance time will allow me to finish some of these. He doesn't need Bill Bright any more than he needs a twig on a tree. He created us in his image, and he loves us, and he esteems us. And we are of worth to him, but he can raise up sticks and stones to worship him. So it's not as though my departure is going to leave a big hole. He doesn't need our discipleship. The question is, does this make us meaningless? If God doesn't need us, where's our meaning? I and mean, we find our meaning in life oftentimes in, in being needed. I, I'm needed by my kids. I'm needed by my wife. I'm needed as a, as a pastor in this role. What, 
find our life. If we are not needed by God, then that make our life meaningless. Our meaning in life, though, is not found in God's need for us. Our meaning in life is found in our need for God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the exact opposite of self-esteem doctrine that dominates pop psychology in our culture today that says meaning is found in you finding significance. That's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches, search for significance, is that God is infinitely significant and our significance is found in embracing His infinite significance. Our meaning is found in embracing Christ as the one who is infinitely significant. And the beauty of it is, this is why he must be the center of our lives. The beauty of it is, when you think about his love, this is ultimate love. God is not compelled by some need to love us. There's not a need in him that compels him to love us. God chooses to love us with a totally, completely unselfish love. This next blank we'll skip, come back to in just a second. The truth is, God needs no one, yet he works through anyone. And this is the beauty here. God exists for himself. We exist for God. You've got a quote here from Tozer. And I hesitate to even share this because it's something I am ashamed of, but it gives you a little context. I remember when I read this quote, I remember I was sitting in an unreached village in Asia. We were hiking into these villages and taking the gospel, uh, basically smuggling materials, gospel materials into people's villages who never heard the name of Christ, hiking in and out and tough places to get to, hard work. And I remember the thought crossed my mind. I began to think uh, that, that God must be glad to have me on his team. And I read these words. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about, seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged and you have the true drive behind much Christian activity today. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to remind you of something. Your life, my life, your church, this church, church at Brook Hills, and every single church in this room could drop dead and turn to dust, and God will still make a great name for himself among the nations. He does not involve us in this mission because he needs us. He involves us in this mission because he loves us. This is a privilege. 
It's a privilege to be a part of declaring the glory of God to the nations. And it's a privilege we cannot forsake. And we needn't think that we are necessary for it. God will get his plan done. Spirituality of God. God is both spiritual and personal. Now what do we mean by that? God is spirit. God is spirit, John 4, 24 says. This means that God is not physical. Does God have physical features? Obviously we see his hands or his face talked about in Scripture, but these are anthropomorphisms, which is basically a big $2 theological term that means that the Bible uses physical terms to describe God that we would be familiar with, but he's spirit. He's not physical. The Bible teaches that God is not visible. He is the king eternal, immortal, invisible, because he is spirit. And in this sense, he is unlike us. We are unlike him. He alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6 says. We see God revealing himself in different ways, just like we've talked about the creation. We see even theophanies, God revealing himself like we talked about in Joshua 5, when Joshua encounters a man who's representing God. But the picture is, in Scripture, God is not visible, not physical. God has has no size or dimensions, even infinite ones. God is not described in size or dimensions at all. We'll talk about that more even when we talk about his omnipresence. But he's not limited to any geographical or spatial location. He's not destructible. He is pure being. He is the fullness, essence of being. He is literally excellence of being, but he is spirit. That's what we mean by spirituality. Not just spirit, though. The danger is when we think of him as spirit, we might misunderstand who God is. He is spirit and person. Meaning, when we think about God as spirit, we can't think about God as a force, some force to be reckoned with, some force that is out there. And he's not an object to be manipulated. He is not some bureau or department or machine that you do this certain thing. Sometimes we even picture this in the way we pray. If I just keep putting bills in the machine and something's going to come out the way I want it to come out. That's not the way God is pictured. He's not a force to be reckoned with, an object to be manipulated. He is a person to be loved. And this is huge. This is huge. Even when we think about the gospel and how we are selling the gospel today in our church culture that we need to get away from. We talk about the gospel as you come to Christ so that you can get heaven. And you come to Christ so you can get forgiveness of sins. You come to Christ so you can get your best life now. You come to Christ so you can get these things. It's all, it's not true. You come to Christ to get God. You come to Christ a person, not things. We have taken God himself out of the gospel and put his gifts in there instead. Now, yes, heaven and forgiveness of sins and abundant life, those are good things, but they all flow from God as a person. You come to Christ to get God. God is spirit and person. He is a person to be loved. Now, this fact that he is spirit is why, is why, one of the reasons why, when you look at Exodus 20 and the, great, and the Ten Commandments and you see images and idols forbidden, it's because God is unlike anything else in all creation and God forbids using anything in all creation to picture him. Now, we live in an image-rich culture and we got to be careful. You can't represent God pictorially with images. That's idolatry to do that because God is not like anything else. You don't say, well, when I picture God, I picture him like this. No, that's idolatry. You don't picture God. We've got to resist that. J.I. Packer said the second commandment is the summons to recognize that God, the creator, is transcendent, mysterious, and inscrutable beyond the range of any imagining or philosophical guesswork of which we are capable. 
God's people should not picture him here because we long for the day when we will see him. We long for the day when we will see him. 1 John 3, 2 says we will see him as he is. Revelation 22, verse 4 says we will see his face. The question is, how do you see the one who is invisible? We'll leave that for heaven to reveal. Okay. <laughs> Spirituality of God. He is spirit in person. The eternity of God. God is both infinite and eternal. Now this is going to kind of feed into the omnipresence, omnibenevolence, the omniscience of God. But he's infinite and eternal. God is infinite. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? What the Bible teaches is that God is unlimited. He is unlimited. He has no limits. And not only unlimited, but he's unlimitable. There are no limits to God and his love, no limits to God and his greatness. He is measureless. You can't talk about amount or size or weight or degrees when you think about God. There's nothing in God that is less or more. There's nothing in God that is large or small. He is measureless. He is boundless. David Wells said it is this God, majestic and holy in his being, this God who love, whose love knows no bounds because his holiness knows no limits, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. He is infinite, no limits, unlimitable, unlimited, boundless, measureless, and eternal. This is where we, we've seen this earlier in verse Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And this is where we get into uh, God's relationship to time. And I'll, I'll be honest, this is just one big headache waiting to happen, to think about God as he relates to time. I can, I'll never forget sitting in a, a, a seminar, a PhD seminar on the doctrine of God. And we spent like three weeks talking about God as he relates to time. And it was just, it was heavy stuff, thick stuff. And I would just find myself just clueless in some of these discussions. I remember we got to one point where the professor said, we're going to go around the room. There were like four options we were discussing that different people believe about God's relationship with time. Christians believe about God's relationship with time and like A, B, C, and D. And, and the professor said, we're just going to go around the table and we're going to ask you guys to share uh, which one you believe. And I'm like, oh, I don't have any clue what A, B, or C, or D mean, much less which one I believe. And so thankfully about five guys went before me and the majority of them said B. And so I was like, well, of course it's B. And uh, I just wait, move on. I didn't even know what B was. So anyway, all that to say, keep that in mind. When we're talking about God and time, I'm, I'm fairly clueless. Um, God has, has eternal. What scripture teaches is that God has no beginning. We've already seen that. And God has no end. Beginning and end do not apply to God. The way I would depict it is, describe it, Scripture teaches that God is Lord over time. He has no past and he has no future. Everything in some sense is present in the consciousness of God. Time does not affect God because he always has been what he always is and always will be. There is in some sense a sense of always being present. God is unchanging throughout all time. Time doesn't affect God, doesn't affect his knowledge. Over time, we grow in knowledge. God doesn't grow in knowledge over time. Time doesn't affect him like that. We're going to talk about the unchangeability of God even deeper in a second. God sees all time equally vividly. This kind of springs from this picture of God as, as in his consciousness always present. He sees all time equally vividly. He sees the past with equal clarity as he sees the future. 
From all of eternity, God has determined what he is now doing. His, he's never responding to actions. Okay, let me wait and see what David does here, and then I'll see what I'm going to do. That doesn't pertain to God. From all of eternity, God has determined what he is now doing. God sees, God, God sees all time equally vividly, but at the same time, he sees events in the context of time, and he acts in the context of time. That's what we see. We see him acting at different points, different points of time in different ways. At the same time, he sees all time equally vividly. If you understand all of that, then congratulations. It's 945, and you've conquered God in time. All right. The reality is we will always exist in time. We will always exist in time. This makes us different from God. And I want you to think about, put these truths together. If God is infinite and eternal, if God is infinitely and eternally glorious, infinitely and eternally holy, infinitely and eternally just, and infinitely and eternally gracious, then, number one, our sin is infinitely and eternally offensive to him. One sin against God is an infinite offense. You sin against a rock, you're not very guilty. You sin against a man, you are very guilty. You sin against God, you are infinitely guilty. As a result, his wrath is infinitely and eternally just toward us. This is the picture of Genesis 3. One sin enters the world. God says, one sin and you will surely die. Doesn't that seem a little extreme? One sin, even you look at different parts of the Old Testament, someone does one sin and the effects are so rampant, they're so strong, it's almost like this overdoing it a little bit. That's because we look at Scripture with man-centered eyes as opposed to with God-centered eyes. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, Romans 5 tells us it was one sin that brought condemnation for all men of all time, billions of people condemned for all time because of one sin. It was one sin that brought all the evil and suffering that we're going to talk about later into the world, all a result of one sin, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, suffering, disease, all as a result of one sin. And in this room together collectively, we have committed thousands upon thousands of sins sins. His wrath is infinitely and eternally just toward us. But the beauty of it is a sin infinitely offensive in his sight, justice infinitely, offens- infinitely just in his wrath against us. But the beauty of it is our salvation. When you're saved from this kind of sin, our salvation is infinitely and eternally satisfying. I love this quote from Stephen Sharnock, Discourse in the Eternity of God. That is one thick book, and this is a thick quote. Just follow along with it. When we enjoy God, we enjoy him in his eternity without any flux. Time is fluid, but eternity is stable. And after many ages, the joys will be as savory and satisfying as if they had been that moment first tasted by our hungry appetites. When the glory of the Lord shall rise upon you, it shall be so far from ever setting that after millions of years are expired, as numerous as the sands on the seashore, the sun and the light of whose countenance you shall live shall be as bright as at the first appearance. He will be so far from ceasing to flow that he will flow as strong, as full, as at the first communication of himself and glory to the creature. God is always vigorous and flourishing, a pure act of life, sparkling new and fresh rays of life and light to the creature, flourishing with a perpetual spring and contenting the most capacious desire, forming your interest, pleasure, and satisfaction with an infinite variety without any change or succession. He will have variety to increase delights and eternity to perpetuate them, this will be the fruit of the enjoyment of an infinite and eternal God. 
You look at Psalm 90. I would encourage you to go back, look at that psalm. It starts off by saying, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It ends, it says, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The eternity of God reminds us, our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. It's a radically different way to live when you live in light of eternity. You look at things very differently when you look at them in light of eternity. We who live in this nervous age, Tozer said, will be wise to meditate on our lives and our days long and often before the face of God and on the edge of eternity. Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, both said, meditate often on eternity. Have a radical effect on your life. The omnipotence of God. This is getting into his infinite eternal power. God has infinite power to do all things in his holy will. That last part is important because there are some things God cannot do. That doesn't mean he's stripped of his omnipotence. We're going to talk about those things in just a second. This picture in Genesis 18, it's God's power to provide for Sarah and Abram, getting pretty old, going to provide them a child. The picture, Jeremiah 32, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Jesus saying there's nothing impossible with God. Scripture teaches that God's power extends over all creation, all creation, it's under the power of God, and it extends through all history. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. His power is over all creation through all history, over everything. Now, what can God not do? One, God cannot undo the past. He can't undo the past. If he did change the past, he would be acknowledging that he messed up in the past. He can't undo the past. He can't deny his character. God can't deny who he is. He can't be unfaithful. He can't cease to exist. All of these attributes can't change in him. He can't deny who he is. 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us he cannot disown himself. He is always faithful. And third, he cannot deceive his people. God cannot lie, Titus and Hebrews say there. Praise God, he cannot fail to do what he has promised in our lives. This is where these truths, these are not just truths on a paper, on a piece of paper. And it's not just theory. This is attributes of God that radically affect the way we relate to Him and understand Him and know Him and live under Him. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.